Well, let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Exodus, chapter 25. And let's begin reading with verse 23 through 30. 23 through 30, we're talking about the table and uh, the showbread on it. It's a table of showbread, and we'll talk about it in a moment. It says, Thou shalt also, thou, thou shalt also make in a table of shittim wood. That's acacia wood, too, by the way. There's another word for it. Acacia wood. Two cubits shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, and make there thereto a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt make unto it a border of an hand breadth round about. And thou shalt make a golden crown to the border thereof round about. And thou shalt make for it four rings of gold, and put the rings in the four corners that are on the four feet thereof. Over against the border shall the rings be for places of the staves to bear the table. Thou shalt make the staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold, that the table may be borne with them. And thou shalt make the dishes thereof, and spoons thereof, and covers thereof, and bowls thereof, to cover with all of pure gold shalt thou make them. And thou shalt set upon the table showbread before me always. Now then, we call this the table of showbread. If you have the picture, you'll see its location uh, in the uh, holy place. So look at that picture and you'll see that it's on the right side as you enter the veil there. And on the left side, you can see that seven-branched candlestick, a golden candlestick, it's said on your uh, picture. And we've just been studying inside the second veil there where you see the Ark of the Covenant. And that's what we studied first is the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat on top of the Ark was the lid. So I want you to get the picture of this whole thing in your minds. Because it's very important that we get in our minds exactly what we find. Actually, there are three pieces of furniture in the holy place. You see, the holy place is the first part as you enter the tabernacle. If you look at your picture, you'll have the, the first part uh, there. And you'll have on the right-hand side the uh, table of showbread. That would be like this. If you read, say this building, just use this as a, an example of the picture. So you entered the front door out there would be the first veil. And then, then uh, as you enter, you'd see on the right-hand side table of showbread. And then on this side, you'd see the golden candlestick, seven-branched candlestick. And then right before you get to this veil, you'd see the altar of incense before you enter this second veil, which is the Holy of Holies. There's a lot of things that's real important about studying these pieces of furniture. So that here you have three pieces of furniture in the, in the Holy... Holy of Holies. I mean, in the holy place. And you only have one behind this veil, which is called the Holy of Holies. Or it's called, in some instances, the Most Holy Place. So you have the sanctuary, the, or the holy place, and then the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place behind the veil, if you have a veil here, separation. Now these three pieces of furniture are out here in this area of the tabernacle. We've started from the inside out. Remember we said we would uh, picture the 
uh, approach from God to man, from God inside the Holy of Holies, the ark and the mercy seat behind the veil. They say there was a, a Shekinah glory, a very bright glory inside that uh, veil where the ark was. And remember, we studied the ark and the mercy seat in our last lessons. And the ark, of course, was an oblong box, remember? And it, had, it was like a chest. In fact, the ark there, mean, uh, the word says chest in the original. It, in the Hebrew, it means chest. And so, it was, had a, it was covered with gold. It had a lid of gold and cherubims of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And, the, and inside of that ark of the covenant, it's called, was the tables of stone that Moses brought down from the mountain. The law. And also there was uh, Aaron's rod that budded inside there. And a golden pot of manna to remind them of their wilderness journeys and how God provided for them in the wilderness. And we already touched on that and said a lot, of, quite a lot about it. That uh, the law was kept in the ark. The ark is always a picture of Christ, by the way. And so Christ kept the law for us. And Aaron's rod that budded, our life is given there. It was a rod that had buds on it, filled with life. And so Christ is our life as well. And then it had the golden pot of manna, which reminds us of Christ who is the bread of life. So all these things are very significant. So when we come out of there from God's presence, we're going to go out to where God meets man on the outside. We're going from God to man from here. And then later on, when you have all the things of the tabernacle rehearsed again, they start with a brazen altar. Look at your picture again. Out at the gate of the court, you see that brazen altar out the gate where the sacrifice was made. Look at, look at your picture. And you see that entrance through the gate so it shows us our approach from man to God to finally get inside where the uh, glory of God is. So we study it two ways, from God to man and from man to God. And that's the way that it's written in this, 20, in this uh, book of Exodus. And we get over there on the 34th, 5th, 6th chapter and along in there and we'll see the remainder of the book of Exodus deals with it from man to God. Man's approach to God. And he has to come, when we get to that part of it, he has to come through that gate of the court. And of course, he comes not himself, but he comes in the person of the priest that represents him, a representative. But it shows us there's only one way of access from a man to God's presence. Uh, there's so much significance here that it begs time to tell about it because uh, we know that when Jesus died on the cross, that the veil of the temple was rent in the midst from the top to the bottom, opening up the way not just for the priest to go in, the high priest to go into the Holy of Holies, but for every believer. And not only that, we find that in Christ's death, that sacrifice out on the brazen altar made way for you and I to come into this holy place where only the priest would go and uh, take care of the bread on the table and the, the golden candlestick and keep it lit and burning. That priestly function was left to the priests only. The people didn't do that. He, he was representing the people. You know, we have representatives in our government. Well, in God had representatives for the people. 
The priests represented them in the Old Testament. But thank God in the New Testament, we enter in, and I'll give you that in just a moment, we enter into the holy place ourselves. So, when we come to this holy place, outside of this second veil it's called, we have the table of showbread, the the altar of incense, you can see it on your picture, the altar of incense, and the uh, golden candlestick on this side. Table on this side, golden candlestick on this side, and the altar of incense right before you get to the veil. Now then, there's something very wonderful about that altar of incense. If you, and we're going to study the table of showbread, but let's turn to the book of Hebrews, if you will, chapter uh, 9. Now remember, keep in mind as we read this, that when Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. This veil here was rent in the midst from the top to the bottom. But let's read this Scripture. Hebrews 9, verse 1. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made. That's what we've been studying. The first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called holiest of all. Now look at this verse 4. Which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. Now then, if you notice, it says in verse 4, which had the golden censer. Or in other words, it had the altar of incense. So that the veil in the temple was rent in the midst when Christ died, and that golden censer, instead of like Exodus says, being in the holy, of, uh, in the holy place out here, it was so well, uh, close to the entrance to the uh, most holy place or behind this veil that it was considered to be in the Holy of Holies because Jesus broke down that separation wall and therefore it was right before that veil so in the area it was considered a part of it after Jesus died on the cross of Calvary. That's why you have a variation between the report in Exodus about the location of it like you have on the picture here and the actual uh, Scripture that says here in Hebrews 9 that it had the golden censer. So it was so closely associated behind this veil that it was really there, connected with the Holy of Holies instead of this holy place. But that I won't belabor that point, but I just want you to know that after Jesus died, things changed a great deal. Especially since the veil of the temple was rent in the midst from the top to the bottom, and it permitted not only the priest and not only the high priest, but you and I as priests to go right into the very presence of God. So a lot was accomplished, and there's so many ramifications that it would take weeks to explain it all, but I will try to give you some of it uh, just shortly, if you'll bear with me. So let's look at this table of showbread that we've studied back here in Exodus and the passage of Scripture that we have before us. And I've given you the three different pieces of furniture in this holy place. We'll call this the holy place. We'll call that behind this wall. Let this represent a veil. The most holy place. So this is a study tonight of the table of showbread. And let's remember that in this holy place, this first area of the tabernacle, that there was nothing but gold that meets the eye. 
Everything was covered with gold. And silence reigns in this portion of the tabernacle. There were no prayers offered. There were no songs of praise sung. And the voice of man was still. And only the golden vessel spoke of Christ. Mutely, they didn't speak out, but they represented Christ. And none but the priestly family could enter into this holy place to trim the, the candlestick, to replenish the oil, and to take care of the table of showbread. And we'll get into more of that in a little bit. And none but the priestly family could enter there. And so today, uh, only those who are saved by grace are made in holy priesthood. Look in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5. In verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 and verse 9. Notice, uh, Peter's talking about believers and he says, Ye also as lively stones, these are Christians, children of God, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, now look, and holy priesthood, and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. The word praises there means virtues. And so everything we show forth as a priestly family should be virtuous. And uh, of course, when we read verse 5 and verse 9, we're convinced that New Testament believers are a priesthood, a priestly family. Remember God said to Israel, I will make you a priestly nation. And now, instead of them, all believers, Jews and Gentiles, every race, color, people, all upon the face of the earth who are believers in Christ, are made a priest or a priestly family in the sight of God. So, when you come into God's presence, you can come through that brazen altar of sacrifice out in the front because that's where your sin offering was offered. And that speaks of Christ and His death on the cross. You come by the labor, the next thing, and you're washed clean as the priests were commanded to wash their hands and the feet before they could enter in the holy place. And you come on in and you you see the light of that Seven branch, seven number of perfection, seven branch candlestick. You see the twelve loaves on the table of showbread. We'll get into the loaves in a little bit because there were twelve loaves there. And that represented all of the children of Israel. So you and I, symbolically, all of God's people are represented by those loaves on that table of showbread. And then we enter not only uh, the altar incense where our prayers are offered up, but we enter into the very presence of God where that ark of the, the covenant that we've been studying behind the veil and the mercy seat overshadowing and the cherubims of gold overshadowing the mercy seat. Or chair, I should have said the mercy seat being the lid of that ark and the cherubims of gold overshadowing the mercy seat. And God's Shekinah glory, God's glory shining forth in that holy place, that most holy place, where we can enter in now freely by what? The blood of Christ. Look in Hebrews, if you will, chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I want you to see this. It says, let's 
look at verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness, look at this, 19, Hebrews 10, 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest, look, where? Behind this veil. Into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Right? By a new and living way, which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh, when He died on the cross, He gave Himself to open up that way. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Where? Right into God's presence. Behind the veil. With a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, we've been from the sacrifice out on the in the opening there, the brazen altar of sacrifice, through that labor into the holy place, and by the table of showbread and the golden candlestick, and into the uh, altar of incense, and then right on into the ark of. Uh, the covenant where God's presence is said to enter into the holiest, that's in the holiest, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He has consecrated for us through the veil. He has made that all possible by His death on the cross so that we can enter into God's very presence as believing priests. As believers, we become priests in our own right and we enter into God's presence. No in-betweens, Jesus has made it possible. And not only possible, but uh, encourages us to enter in that way. There's so much there that I don't believe that we can even digest it. But to give you an indication, the priestly family in the Old Testament, Aaron and his sons, and then the Levites later, all the Levitical priesthood, could only enter in this far. Except the high priest on one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, with that blood, could enter into the Holy of Holies. But that Scripture says that having boldness, you and I, to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He hath consecrated for us through the veil. Think of it for a moment now. A new and living way. The word new there indicates in the New Testament, it's the only time it's used in the original in this sense of the word, and ever fresh, ever fresh. You know we sing a song, the precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Okay. The blood of Christ for our salvation and for its virtuous effect is just as effectual today as it was the day that Jesus died on the cross of Calvary. It's just as effective. And it always shall be. Because it's a new, a new and living way. Ever fresh, effectual, and virtuous as the day when Jesus died and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst from the top to the bottom. Now then, in the Holy of Holies, we saw the work of Christ in our behalf before God's throne of mercy. And this is the position of the believer within the heavenlies as he is presented before the Father in the person of our high priest and our federal head, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are now within the veil in a spiritual sense in heaven with Christ. He is there our representative. And the work that He has done is completed. And now, without the veil, without that veil in the holy place, 
we see the believer in Christ occupying a position uh, of worshiper. We have a position of being a worshiper now in the sight of God and in the presence of God. Not, not as a, in the position of having to offer a sacrifice, for Jesus did this for us once and for all. So we don't have to offer any sacrifice. That's all done. You say, well, we're priests and the priests offered sacrifices. Yes, but we don't offer any sacrifices because Jesus did that for us, our great high priest. And we come as a worshiper. Now then we get back to the showbread, the table that we're talking about of showbread. Uh, the position of the table was, as we said, you come in, it's on the right-hand side. And by the way, that's the north side. Just take this building... You know, north or south in this way this building is shaped. It's facing south. Let's just flip it around east. Front door would be over here. Just turn the building around. That's what this tabernacle is doing. It's facing the east. Well, the table of showbread then would be on the north side. See that? It would be on the north side. I remember one time I was building a house helping a contractor. At that time, I was working for a contractor. Right up here behind the old Walmart building on, the, on that cliff. And I mean, it was hanging over the cliff. And one day, uh, the boss told me, he says, go around on, on the north side there and uh, do so, something on the roof. I was working on the edge of the roof or something. He says, go around on, on the north side. And I said, well, you know, the building. I said, well, that's the west side. And I said, this is the, the north side over this way. Oh, no, he just argued with me. So after lunch, he, <laughs> he came back. I, I beat him there, you know. And I had a little old compass about yay big around. It had a tire around it for just to hold it together. That's the way it was made. And I stood out there and I was pointing <laughs> that that deal was pointing north over this way. This is north. So it was pointing over that way and he said, uh, what are you doing? And I said, oh, well, I'm just trying to check and see which way is north. He says, it's over that way toward that mountain. I said, no, you head toward that mountain. You're going west. <laughs> and so he looked at that thing and he looked at that thing and he shook it. <laughs> finally, finally, he was convinced that that was north over that direction. So anyway, uh, if you were to turn this around and the tabernacle was facing the east, it was set up always facing the east so that the table of showbread would be on the north side and the golden candlestick would be on the south side, you see. And then all these directions will be important later on when you study the boards of the tabernacle because it tells us on the west side as well. So we need to keep that in mind as we study. Now then... <clears throat> So we come into a position of worship. And in the holy place, we find this table of showbread. And remember the construction of it. It was made of acacia wood, or shittim wood is called here, but it's acacia is another word, another name for the same wood. And it's a type of grain wood. Uh, very durable. Indestructible. And... Uh, it, this wood speaks of the humanity of Christ. And then it was covered with gold, which speaks of the deity of Christ. And if you look at it, you can see that. Let's look at the verse of Scripture and give it to you. The two verses, verse 23. You're back in Exodus 25, verse 23 and 24. 
says, Thou shalt also make a table of shittim wood. Two cubits shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. Now you remember these dimensions? And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, and make there thereto a crown of gold round about. We'll get into those crowns around the table in a little bit. But I want you to think about it. Here you have the table made of made of uh, acacia wood, and you have it covered with gold. Now the wood speaks of the humanity of Christ. Remember in Isaiah 53 it says, He shall grow up before Him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground, like wood. But then the Bible tells us that uh, it goes on to tell about uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, deity. Read John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It says, All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to bear witness of the light. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. That is the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world. The world was made by Him. The world knew Him not. He came into His own, and His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. So what we find is that the deity of Christ... And we said, we taught before many times that in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, you not only have true humanity, but you have God manifest in the flesh. He was man and He was God. He was just as much man as any one of us are human. But He was just as much God as God the Father is God. But there was a blending of those two persons of the Godhead in that person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's hard for us to understand, isn't it? See Him as man. When you see Christ as man, He had the uh, things that you and I have in need of food. He got hungry. He needed sleep. He worked. He worked in the carpenter shop with Joseph. He had the condition of sweating to make to labor. Uh, he was man. He's spoken of in the Gospel of Luke time and time again as the Son of Man. The Son of Man. That's one of the favorite titles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you get into the Gospel of John and He was God. Because He starts out, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is, that is pre-existent. In the beginning was the Word. Pre-existence. The Word was with God. That's coexistence. And the Word was God. That's self-existence. And on down in verse 14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Well, I believe that's verse 13. And verse 14 says, And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Isn't that verse 13 and 14 probably? But anyway, be that as it may, we see these two materials that represent the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ. He's the man, Christ Jesus. Christ is the anointed. Jesus is His human name. And furthermore, we find that there's a Scripture, I believe it's in Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, when God, uh, Paul is telling about the Gospel of God's Son. He says, 
Now in verse 3, Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and verse 4, he says, Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was made of the seed of David. Listen, here you have the humanity. He was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. There you have the humanity. And the next verse says, And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. His resurrection guaranteed that He was the Son of God. He said that after three days, I will rise again. And He rose again the third day. He is not here for He's risen as He said. We've been studying that in Sunday school. He said He would and He did. And that's a proof of His deity. You write those two verses down. Romans 1, verse 3 and 4. The first one shows His humanity and the second one shows His deity. Now then, I want you to notice that we describe this uh, a, a table of showbread back here. And we'll get into the meaning of that in a little bit. You know, there's so much here that I hesitate to pass over any of the statements that I want to give you. It had two crowns. This table had two crowns, an inner crown around it and an outer crown. And it had golden rings in the corners, remember? Through which two staves, they were wood, wood staves, covered with gold. Everything was gold, covered with gold. And these were put in these rings, like you have a table here, and you put the rings in the corners, and you put these staves in them, and they stick out so that you, you can carry, this could transport this table of showbread when they had to move it. By the way, every time the pillar of cloud and fire moved, and pillar of fire moved, the children of Israel dismantled the tabernacle and they moved. And when the pillar of cloud and fire stopped, they stopped. And then they set up the tabernacle. When God decided for them to move, they moved. When God decided for them to stay, they stayed. That's the way we ought to be. Submissive to God's moving. And that pillar of cloud and fire symbolized the Holy Spirit that guides us throughout our wilderness journeys just as it did Israel. But anyway, uh, these uh, two crowns, inner and outer, and the golden rings in the four corners, two on either side, and two wooden bars that passed through these uh, rings that were on either side to carry the table from place to place. But upon this table, there were placed twelve loaves of bread. And there were six in a row. There were two rows, six in each row on this table. Why would there be twelve? Representing all the family of God at that time. All the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Of the families of God. Now then, just as all of them were represented there, Christ represents all of us. All of His family. Every believer upon the face of this earth, every child of God, is represented by Him being the bread of life. And He's put us all together. And we're all one body and one bread on the table. God makes provision for all of His own. He did in the Old Testament. He does for you and I. As the bread and the table are one, so Christ and His church are one. This bread and the table were one one item. You didn't just say, here's bread and here's the table. The bread was put upon that table and made it all one. And so, we are members of a, a local congregation and we're all one bread in one body, so is Christ in His church. Christ is the head, and the church is His body. And uh, Paul said to the Corinthian church, he says, ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. We're all represented. 
If you want to study the word church, you'll find out that there's no such thing in our day and hour as a universal church. There's local churches. And almost all the times in the New Testament, let me see if I can find something, probably I can. Of 115 times in the New Testament where you find the word church, 79 times it's New Test in the New Testament, it just says church. Referring to the church of Ephesus, the church at Corinth, the church at Jerusalem, the church uh, at Antioch, and the church in Colossae. Uh, all the different the church of the Thessalonians. They all had a locality. Jesus gives us the words to church in the, in the book of Revelation. He says, write this letter to the church of Ephesus. Send this one. And to the church of Sardis, the church of, of uh, Philadelphia, the church of Laodicea, all of them. He chooses seven of them. And He points out local individual churches. Jesus has the last word about churches. And then, not only 79 times you find the word church, but 36 times you have the word churches, plural. And then you find three times it's called assembly in Acts 9, chapter 19. And in one instance, it's a disorderly assembly. Remember, it says when the whole assembly came together. The same word for church. But it was a disorderly assembly. And one time in Hebrews 12, verse 23, it refers to the church in glory. In the future aspect of the church. And one time in James 2, verse 2, it refers to the church in glory. And has both the word assembly and church. Assembly and church. Now then, someone says, well, uh, th- that's the universal church. Well, it will be all, it will be assembled when it's in glory. And it will not be universal. There will be people that won't be members of it. But it will be all the redeemed will make up a glorified church in the presence of the Lord. But you and I deal strictly with a local church. And I know you're going to find the theologians that will dispute everything I've said just now. But I'll guarantee you, if you study the word church, you go through the New Testament and you find when it says the church at Antioch. Well, that's a location, isn't it? When it says the church of Ephesus, that's a location. You go all through the church of Corinth. And Paul said to that church of Corinth, ye are the body of Christ. He didn't say you and Ephesus and Antioch and Jerusalem and others. He says... He didn't say all these churches are the body of Christ. He says ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. Now there's such a thing around here in the theological world that believes in a universal church idea. And we don't, don't have to go very far to talk about that. It's not a universal church. It's a local church. And you have preachers that come from time to time. I've had them come in this church that are doing a good work and we let them... We've supported them go across the country and take Bibles to various parts. One is the, is what do you call them? The Bible curiers. But I heard uh, that young preacher, or not so young, he's a little younger than I am, so he's young. But anyway, he said, the body of Christ everywhere. Well, the body of Christ is not everywhere. The body of Christ is somewhere. It has a location, a place. When you're talking about the body of Christ, 
uh, Paul says, ye are the body of Christ. And your members in particular. And so, it's just like every other congregation like this. They are too. You say, well, there's too many bodies. Well, never mind that. When we speak of... Let, let me give you a way that you might understand what I'm talking about completely. We say uh, the American high school. Do we mean that there's just one high school that covers the whole United States of America? No, we mean there's a, a high school here in Riodosa. There's one in Tularosa. There's some down in Texas. There are other high schools all over the country. One in type and kind. And that's the way the church is. It doesn't mean we're the only church. It means there are other churches. But they're local. And they're independent. Should be. And they should uh, govern themselves. We don't get orders from headquarters or hindquarters. We... We get our own orders here in this local congregation and we do as God directs us under the leadership of the pastor and the deacons and the people when they vote on something. That's the final rule, isn't it? Nobody else tells us what to do. But in some churches, they don't have that privilege. They wait until some convention headquarters tells them what to do. We don't have to wait for that. If we decide to help someone, we help them. We decide to give to certain missionaries, we give to certain missionaries. And by the way, our money goes directly. Every dime we give to a missionary, he gets every dollar that we've dedicated to go to him. Nothing is taken out. I didn't mean to stop and preach on the local church, but I'll go ahead and finish it since I'm there. Let me tell you this. You know, years ago, there was it was told me a story about a fellow... Uh, you know when they had the march of dimes, you put dimes in the little can or whatever it was, and so this fellow puts in a dollar, and uh, he says, "I put in the ninety cents to make sure that dime gets where it's supposed to go," and that's about what it takes. You see what I mean? It takes a lot of money in some of those charitable organizations to make what you give get to where it's supposed to go. I don't know if you know that, but anyway, you probably do. I'm probably not telling you anything new. But once in a while, I hit on something that you need to think about. Uh, what I want you to know is that when you give money to a charitable organization, there's some guy out there, a director. He gets a plane ticket to go to a certain place. You pay for his dinners, his meals. He drives a Cadillac or Lincoln Continental or a Rolls Royce or Mercedes Benz. Whatever he wants to. Maybe even a Chevrolet. <laughs> but whatever he drives, you're paying for it. And you've got to pay all the expenses of getting, his, of getting the work done that, that he's supposed to be doing. And your dollars, about a certain percent of it, gets to where you've intended to go. We hope. We hope it gets there. But that's the way this world works. But when we give to missionaries, they get every dime that we send them. Every dime that we send that missionary, he gets all of it. And thank God for local Baptist churches that can make up their own mind how they will send money to their missionaries. Our time has gone and passed, isn't it? All right. We'll finish this, the Lord willing, on the table of showbread. We just kind of got started. There's a lot more.